Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, I chat to another great friend of Raptor Aids, James Aldred. Now, James Aldred is one of those people you would want to have round your table at a dinner party. He's an Emmy Award-winning cameraman. He's been all over the world filming wildlife. He's worked with David Attenborough, and he climbed some of the tallest trees in the world in order to film this wildlife. He's also the author of a book, The Man Who Climbs Trees, which covers all the exploits that he's got up to filming wildlife, including being beaten up by an angry female harp eagle while he's climbing to fit a remote camera on her nest sit back get a cup of tea and enjoy this chat with the wonderful james aldred wow let's do it right okay according to this we are now streaming live on facebook so James, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me on our Facebook page. We might get some questions. We might not. It depends who who logs in. I tell you, someone who was annoyed that we couldn't do it last night was your was your old friend Nick, your old friend Nick Dunbar. Ah, how <laughs> is so, so I think he's all right. Yeah, I think I think he's all right. We try, I, I tried to get him. I tried to get you on, obviously, but and he did message me saying oh, I was looking forward to catch, catching up with the two of you. But um, we obviously, yeah. Well, fingers crossed. We'll we'll, we'll get him on here. I'm going to try and have a look to and get the questions up. Um, so I always start with the same thing, sort of asking yep. people just to tell me a bit about themselves and what they do, just for people okay. who've never heard of James Aldred before. Yeah, uh, lucky them. <laughs> um, so I'm, a wildlife, I'm a wildlife cameraman and I've been doing that sort of on and off for uh, the last 25 years or so. Um, I, I specialise in working in the in the forest canopy. Um, so I use a lot of rope access and uh, spend a lot of time up in, in uh, trees um, in various parts of the world. So a lot of time in jungles and rainforests. Um, a lot of time in temperate um, forests as well. But yeah, so I specialise in trying to film the sort of more secretive wildlife that hangs out in treetops. Um, yeah. yeah. But you, you're, not just, you're not just any old uh, camera. You've been doing it quite a while, haven't you? Um, yeah. yeah, so I've been doing it for almost, well, I'd say almost 30 years now. I climbed um, first trees um, as a kid in the new forest where I was growing up. Um, had some mates who were much better climbers than me and they sort of dragged me up trees and I couldn't really get my head around why anyone would want to do that at that point. Um, but um, I got hooked actually and I can't say that I was particularly sort of naturally gifted climber from the outset by any means. It took a lot of practice and I, I don't have a, a particularly good head for heights even, but the lure of the wildlife that was hanging out in the treetops was strong. And that was a real incentive to just go away and practice the rope techniques as a teenager 
until I got to the point where it became, you know, sort of second nature, really. Um, yeah. And that was a key that, that opened up access to a completely new um, sort of unexplored world. Um, even, even in temperate deciduous forests, places like the New Forest or the Forest of Dean or even your local woods, really, um, there's a lot going on up there. Um, and it's that old adage, you know, sort of sit still, look long, keep quiet. Stuff literally comes out the woodwork. And, and you know, I, and when I was trying to get into the world of wildlife filming, um, you know, even a, a, a privileged insight to the life of a goldcrest or a firecrest in a Douglas fir canopy, that was right up there in my books with getting a glimpse of an orangutan or something in, in the rainforest and still is. Yeah. You know, yeah. Very special. Because you, you, you live in a perfect part of the world, don't you? So that your, your home, home is based in the new forest, isn't it? Yeah, so. Well, I'm, well, I haven't lived down in the forest now for about 20 years. I moved up to Bristol. Um, being oh, of course, the yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Bristol, Bristol's a funny, well, it's a great place to live, but in terms of, it, it sort of punches well above its weight. It's got a fantastic community of uh, wildlife filmmakers. Um, Br Bristol became synonymous with natural history TV via the natural history units of the BBC. And that was just completely by luck, by, by happenstance, really. It, it's, it's not because Bristol's any greener than anywhere else. It was just that, at the time, in whenever it was, 60s or 70s, um, there happened to be a producer based at BBC Bristol who was particularly into natural history filmmaking. And so yeah. he was, and, and they, you know, sort of ran with it and, and it took off and it became entrenched within this area. Um, so if, if you want to sort of get work in natural history TV, which I did when I, I left university, it, it seemed like a logical place to come to. You know, and it's a good city. There's there's good wildlife. There's plenty of you know sort of peregrines and ravens, loads of buzzards, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so it's a good place to be, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I suppose yeah. A lot of a lot of friends of mine that are in the in that situation live in that part of the part of the world. Um, but tell us a bit about tell us a bit. There's one tree in particular, isn't there? That what's the talk about a bit about tree, the tree climbing first, and then we'll go into the, the the filmmaking and stuff. So you got into it obviously with friends in the new forest. There's one yeah. particular tree, tree, isn't there? Yeah. So the the first time I went climbing, I was. 15, I think, and uh, um, life had taught me an important lesson about beer the night before. Um, so I was pretty ragged um, the following morning. And, um, and, and my mate, Paddy, who um, got me into tree climbing, he was my best mate. He, um, yeah. we, we just had a, a quite a raucous party and him and another friend who was a rock climber, they just the following morning, they said, right, we're gonna go and climb a tree. And I sort of, you know, poured myself into the car and went along with them. And they, they gave me some sort of hand-me-down rope and harnesses and things, which is no better than what they had, to be honest. I mean, everyone was climbing on pretty sketchy gear. Yeah. And, um, and I thought it was going to be like a 30 or 40 foot oak or beach or something. And, and we rocked up at the base of this monster. It was a 165 foot tall redwood. And there wasn't a branch for the first 30 feet. And I know, you know, these days with tree climbing techniques, the way they are, 30 feet is nothing. You can get a rope up, but 
back then, you know, all of the catapults we routinely use, all of the gear, all of the throw bags, throw line, none of that had been invented. No one was using that. So we stood at the bottom for ages with a rope bundle trying to get a rope up. And, yeah. and it, was, it was like it was, it was like watching the goodies or something. It was just it was just a it was just a complete debacle. Um, until uh, Matt, our other friend, who was uh, also an ice climber, um, produced a, a, an ice axe and an ice hammer and a set of crampons. <laughs> and, and that's how we got into our first redwood. Nice. I mean, yeah, I know. Well, the bark was so thick, I don't think it really hurt the tree at all. But it was pretty nervy stuff that Matt did. I mean, I wouldn't do that. Even now, I, you know, he was just digging his crampons into the bark and up, and up he went. Got to the first branches, which were dead, um, as, as they often are in, in giant redwoods. And, yeah. um, and and those guys carried on going. They were like, right, are you okay? And I'm like, uh, I, I don't, and before I'd even finished the sentence, they were gone, you know, they were climbing up. And I was left there on the first, I don't know, 35, 40, maybe. I got up to about 70 feet, I think, something like that. And my yeah. legs were going, I had the Elvis disco moment and I had to sit yeah. there on a branch and wait for them to come back down. But it, it, it was, I don't know, something got in under my skin and it, it was just such a different world up there. And there were gold, I, I saw my first gold crest up there. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that was, you know, that was a big moment that I, that, that I still remember. And it drew me back and back. And I, I was determined then to keep up with Paddy and Matt on future climbs. So I went off and practiced a lot on my yeah. own, on, on the old tat um, that I had been given. And um, yeah. But gradually learned the ropes and got to the point where I can hold my own. But but Paddy was climbing day in day out. He was a tree surgeon, so to, he was very very good, you know. And and it, and I think that's important. If you're going to go out and climb or learn anything from anyone, they've got to be a lot better than you. Otherwise, you don't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I suppose it's like anything playing sport against someone who's a bit better than you. You're always going to push yourself. Yeah, it's funny you should mention the old di disco leg because I don't, I don't think I go up to quite the heights that you do with tree climbing. I don't always need to. I don't need to necessarily. But I've had a few moments like that. And I remember when I used to. I probably told you this. The, when I used to climb trees for monitoring birds of prey and a friend gave me and i've still got it an old rock climbing harness and i yeah. used to just have a, a climbing sling um, and two carabiners and <laughs> i used to climb up free climb and then chuck the sling around when i needed a break or something and clip on or if it was a particularly <laughs> tricky bit but i used to i never forget meeting my friend again and explaining what i was doing and the look of sheer horror on his face because i used to clip the carabiners onto the gear loops, not the actual. <laughs> so, so my friend was like, "You do realise though, that that's just for hanging equipment on, not not a whatever I was, 12, 13 stone bloke." And he's like, so if you just slipped it, it'd been essentially a waste of time. So anyway, yeah, I mean, it makes us believe, doesn't it? I mean, I I think quite a few of us can honestly say we we sort of had angels on our shoulders and uh, mm. uh, a lot of the time. But, but it's before health and safety. I mean, my harness didn't have, and I'm sure yours was the same. It, it was yeah. an old leather affair, and it yeah. had been retired from the local tree surgeon. So it was absolutely rinsed. You know, if a tree surgeon won't climb on something, then you really shouldn't be climbing on it. You know? <laughs> but this thing was just absolutely mullered. Had no yeah. leg loops at all, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's a good learning experience. Yeah, we used to get up to all sorts of stuff in trees and climbing around that we probably shouldn't have. And I'd, I'd be aghast if I heard that my kids were doing that now, you know, but that's growing up, isn't it? And, and, and thankfully back then, you know, tree climbing just wasn't on the radar. So the idea of being, you know, of there being trees that you weren't allowed to climb or weren't meant to climb or anything, you know, it just wasn't an issue at all. And, um, yeah. You know, not saying we were cavalier with it or anything, um, but you know, you could get access to climb things which you just can't these days um, for good reason, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, we're talking about this the, <laughs> the, the the sort of early days of climbing. I must, I'll obviously mention now that you you run a successful company. You don't just do wildlife. Um, camera work. Uh, you run a company called Canopy Access, so which actually trains people. And so, so yeah, tell us a bit about that, just to reassure people you know what you're talking about, because I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Can Canopy Access has gone through. It's been around a good few years now, and it's gone through a lot of different guises, um, you know, over the years. And um, Really, it's just a very small training company, um, run a couple of training courses, probably half a dozen a year. And I, I just run it as a, as a sideline interest in between my um, main bread and butter and my main passion really, which is the wildlife filming. Um, but very early on, I was being asked by producers, cameramen, um, how do you get up into the rainforest canopy um, safely? And I was kind of making things up as I went along, but I, I um, was steered in the, in the good direction of doing an industrial rope access uh, training course um, in the mid nineties um, before I went out to Borneo for the first time. So the producer who was also a climber, he, he said, um, you, you, you can't climb up those big jungle trees using Prusik loops and, 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 and in a harness that looks like it should be on a shire horse. You know, you just can't do that. Um, so you've got to, you've got to really, um, you know, sort of use your head and skill up. So he put me in the direction of that course and that got me off the ground. That introduced me to caving techniques, to rope access techniques, to mountain climbing um, um, and, and SRT techniques. Mm -hmm. And then on the back of that, like I say, I was being asked to, to show people. And a lot of friends and colleagues have contributed to that um, process over the years. And, and what we have today is a course, which isn't perfect, but it, it's pretty good. I'm pretty proud of it, actually. It, it's designed to get people off the ground, safely up into, uh, up into trees. It's not a valid ticket to work or accredited, you know, with, um, uh, you know, any NPTC or anything. It's just for people who have an interest, want to stay safe, and they need an efficient way to climb big trees. Um, so I run half a dozen of them um, through the year, just when I'm around, basically. Got four or five very talented instructors um, who are really close mates now, really good guys. And when I'm not around, they can deliver it for me. But it, it's... It's not really a going concern and probably never will be, but it's a passion and it's a love and it's a wonderful thing to transfer that knowledge to get people who have never even seen a carabiner before on the Monday doing complex rescues and climbing an 80 foot beach on their own by yeah. Friday afternoon. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it is a pretty cool thing to be able to pa pass on to people because there are so many people because it, it there's all walks of life, isn't there? You know that yeah. that can use it. It's not just 
you know, we talk about wildlife filmmaking, but ecologists and people like me are vo voluntary, you know, monitoring birds of prey. So, um, yeah, and, and to learn off people like yourself, and I don't know him, but I've read a lot of stuff about Waldo as well and stuff like that. It's it's pretty, yeah. some of the, yeah. to learn off people like you is pretty epic, I think. So, so yeah. Well, anyone want, go on. Yeah, well, a lot, a lot of those guys that are in the, you know, they're in their late 20s, early 30s, and they're, they're as fit as a butcher's dog. You know, I'm past it now. I'm, I'm 45 next week. But I learn a lot from them and the way they do things. And uh, slow and steady is my way these days, I think. But it's fantastic being around younger climbers. Because even though, you know, you can't really, well, and, 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 you, and you really shouldn't, you know, try and compete with them, you know, yeah. physically. Um, they're bringing, uh, they, they pick up on, on new techniques that are out there so quickly um, because the forums are, are so, you know, they're so sort of savvy in terms of, yeah, yeah how the industry is moving forward that um, it, it's a good two-way relationship, actually. I like to think that I bring a, a little bit of, dare I say it, sort of steadiness or wisdom to it. I sound ridiculous even saying that, but yeah. um, I certainly get, uh, you know, more than enough back in return from them in terms of just their sheer enthusiasm exuberance and mastery of modern skills that i i had no knowledge about growing up you know yeah you still can't be the old slow and steady spider pig i'm nearly 35 and that's my way of doing this i'm 10 years yeah. younger than you but yeah anyway. no it's important stay safe <laughs> yeah i know i mean that's the thing and as soon as <laughs> You know, what I realise now, and particularly working in rainforest environments, they're so complex, dynamic and constantly shifting. You know, you, you just can't um, assume that anything you're climbing is safe to climb. Yeah. So it's safety, safety, safety uh, constantly. And, and if that means taking the edge off your speed and just thinking twice, you know, it's that it's that old thing, isn't it? Measure twice, cut once. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with with climbing, certainly in the rainforest, you know, before you commit to any particular piece of gear, you just have to check, double check, keep checking um, that it's safe to do so. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Cool. OK, so, yeah, that's the, the climb. So if anyone's really interested, Canopy Access, you'll find it online or I can put the web address up if anyone wants to get involved in a bit of tree climbing. Um, okay, so wildlife because and wildlife filmmaking because you've you've done your fair share of that. Um, yeah. Let's start from uh, don't, rather than start from the beginning. Let's start yeah. from sort of what's what are some of the highlights for you? What have you you enjoyed doing the most? I suppose we should talk about raptors really because that's where on raptor yeah. age. So. Well, I mean. You know, there, there are, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thought of seeing a, a, a goshawk in the wild when I was a kid um, was just impossible. You know, I mean, uh, uh, raptors were still recovering from um, uh, organochlorines and DDT and, and all those nastinesses, which, um, you know, um, were out there and took decades to permeate down through the, the ecosystem. So... When I was growing up, um, you know, there, there was a, a local pair of sparrowhawks, which just blew my mind every season they came back. But really, I didn't see anything else. You had to go to the Purbex to see the one pair of peregrines that were there. And I never made it, you know. So I was well into my 20s before I ever got the chance to really film uh, a raptor's nest properly in the canopy. And um, 
you know, it was, it was a wonderful experience because you're being given a privileged insight into the intimate behavior and life of a bird that quite frankly does not want to be seen. Um, and they're very, very good at keeping a low profile. Most raptors are. Um, and it was many years until I got the chance to, to film goshawks. And I have to say that filming goshawks on a nest in Gloucestershire where we met Jimmy, mm -hmm. Uh, which is like four years ago, almost five years ago, I suppose. Um, that has got to rank as a real highlight, a real privilege to look down a thousand mil lens straight into the sort of ruby red eye of a glaring goshawk yeah. and just have it look straight through back at you is, is quite a moment. You know, it was a real shiver down the spine moment. But yeah, I'm particularly passionate about raptors. So I've been fortunate enough to film them in the rainforest as well. So things like harpy eagles, Philippines eagle, um, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I've been very, very lucky to spend time around those guys. Now, one of the, so, okay, one of the first times I ever came across the name James Aldred was uh, BBC Wildlife. No, it was probably the programme had been on, so I just, I just, it was, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't Cry Watch, the cat burglar, no. Um, it was, um, it was, it was obviously the BBC um, Natural World on the Harpy Eagle. And then yeah, right. I think the, fir the first time I obviously, I, I really got to know who James Aldred was, though, was, B I don't know if you remember this, um, was the BBC Wildlife magazine, and they ran an art like they ran a little segment on you, James and James and the Giant Eagle, or something like that. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Being. yeah. So, tell us a bit about because that's quite some story. That yeah. So, so harpy eagles. Um, one of my best mates growing up um, worked at the New Forest Owl Sanctuary or Centre, um, and um, he, he works for the Forestry Commission now. A chap called uh, Simon Holloway, and he was um, he's a lovely he's a lovely chap. And he, um, he was always massively into raptors as a kid. And I remember going around his house when I was about 12 years old and he had a beaten up old VHS copy of a National Geographic documentary showing a bunch of uh, cameramen going up into the canopy to film this mythical thing called a harpy eagle. I'd never heard of it before at all. And um, the next thing I knew, I was looking at these old sort of fuzzy footage of these guys in wearing motorcycle helmets. I was like, well, what the hell are you climbing with motorcycle helmets for? And they're climbing up this rope and, and they just get nailed by this bird, which comes in to, to ward them off away from the nest. And I'm, I'm looking at it with, with sort of mixed awe and horror um, as these guys are getting struck by this eagle. And, and then later on, they show the footage that the documentary filmmaker, a chap actually subsequently I'd, I'd learned is, is Neil Rettig, who's pretty much synonymous with filming these birds. Um, very talented guy. He had a... Um, yeah, he had the documentary, and it and it got straight into my head. You know, as a kid, I, I I from that moment on, I was like, I have to get to a rainforest, and I have to film, if not see, uh, harp eagles. So when the opportunity to to come up uh, came up to 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 go and help um, a cameraman called Graham Hatherley and a producer called Adrian Seymour uh, to help them get into the canopy and and to do a bit of camera work alongside Graham. Um, to film harpies in the wild, I jumped at it. And um, we, we got in touch with, with Neil actually, and Neil very wisely said, well, some birds are aggressive, some aren't. It's impossible to say they're individuals. You won't really know until you climb up onto the nest. Um, so we wanted to put a nest camera up on, on the harpy nest. We didn't really know how the mother bird was going to react. 
um, but we didn't want to take any chances. So we took out a bit of uh, body armor, took out, um, I went down to uh, uh, Army and Navy surface base in Bristol, got a ex-police um, riot helmet, a stab yeah. and greaves and gloves. And it was all a bit ridiculous, really. It felt really it, all a bit, you know, silly to putting it on, especially in the sweltering heat of the rainforest. Um, and the first time we went up, Graham and I, we, we got the nest cam on the nest without any problems at all. We thought she was sitting on chicks, but we'd, um, we'd got the calculations out by a day or something, and it turned out she was on eggs. And there were two in the nest. So we got up there and, and we're panicking. We're like, oh my God, how long has she been off the nest? How long is it going to take for them to get too cold or even too hot? It's the tropics. You know, thermoregulation isn't just a, a question of cooling in the tropics. It's a big issue. It can swing the other way. A patch of sunlight can come over through the canopy and the eggs get cooked. Yeah. But we were committed. So we got the nest cam on as quick as we caught uh, uh, abseil down and everything was fine. Mum went straight back on the nest. And within a few days, they actually hatched. Oh. Um, the nest camera then actually um, recorded um uh siblicide. okay the, the, yeah. Wow. yeah yeah so so both of them had been incubated which was unusual for harpies both yeah. of them hatched it was a male and a female within a few days of each other the female within a week or or two um had pitched the male over the side had, had killed it pushed it out the nest yeah and um the, uh, the, the local guy who was there um, filming it in the interim while we were back in the UK, we got set up and stuff, and he had filmed all that. But the camera had gotten fogged, so it never made it into the programme. The, the picture was unusable. It was uh, humidity in there. So when Graham, um, Adrian and I came back, um, the chick was now about three months old, two months old. And, of course, what we didn't realise is the mother's... Um, aggression had gone up in proportion to her investment she'd been feeding this chick yeah and we just assumed that she'd be totally chillaxed with us the way she was first time and because the, the the primary issue here isn't us it's the bird if she buckles a feather or snaps a a, a, a talon in the process of trying to ward off an intruder she can't feed that chick so the nest fails she can't yeah. hunt um so anyway, we, we, we didn't realise how aggressive she was going to be. We made the decision to, to go up and sort the camera out, climbed up, and she, she had a, a field day, actually. I, I went up first, and she took me to the cleaner. She hit me six times in the back as I was climbing up. Um, and it's very interesting, actually, having a monkey's eye view of such a large predatory eagle. Because what I notice is when you're looking from below, these birds have a huge profile. They're like a crescent moon. They're like a semicircle. Their, yeah. their wings, they're like a giant goshawk. Their tail feathers open out to fill the gap between their broad wings perfectly. So you yeah, get yeah. this sort of, you know what I mean? It's like a semicircle. It's like a flying flank of wood. But when you see them head on, all of that disappears. And all you're seeing, because they stop flying, they stop flapping, they come in on a glide when they're going to attack. So there's no motion at all, apart from this thin black line getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with alarming speed coming straight at you. And then at the last moment, they drop their talons, the whole thing pivots around its axis, yeah. and they present their feet, and you suddenly realise how big this thing is. 
And on one of the occasions, I was actually blown out of her line of attack by the downdraft of her wings. Wow. Phenomenal. Anyway, she, wow. she, she caught me glancing blows in the back, in the kidneys, always from behind, six times on the way up. She raked me down the back. I had the stab vest on, so it wasn't too bad. I got up onto the branch, though, and I was shaking by this point. And I thought that now we were in the canopy, she'd give me a bit of respite. But she actually perched on a branch 20 feet above me. And I thought, well, she's not going to launch an attack from there. So I made the mistake of taking my eyes off her in order to spin round to untangle my ropes. And as I was looking up at her and I span round, sort of pirouetted on this branch to, to take this kink out of my ropes. In the split second it took me to get my eyes back on her, she came off and she'd been watching. She got my, she knew where the gap was between my stab vest and my neck guard on the riot helmet. And she got her big thumb talons down. Um, I'll show you something, hold on. So this here, that's a crowned eagle thumb talon. Yeah. That's, that's from the Congo, about 20, 25 years ago. I found that in the Congo. Um, a, a mate gave it to me. He had found a dead bird and, and in the jungle, and he gave me that. And I would say that the harpy was probably another inch and a half to two inches longer than that. And, and it got me, she got me right into the neck with that thing. And it knocked me off the branch and it knocked me out for a split second. And I was sort of blacked out spinning on the ropes. And um, it felt like being hit around the back of the head with a, a, a um, you know, a, a, a sledgehammer. It really did. It was really, it just wasn't funny. And I shouted down to Graham and I said, look, this is only TV. I'm out of here. And, and Graham, to his, uh, my everlasting gratitude and his credit, said, wait there, James, I'm coming up to cover your back, we'll get this camera sorted between us. And that was absolutely the right thing to do. Because if I'd have tried to come down again in that condition, she, she would have gone straight through my head. She, yeah. Um, anyway, Graham came up and we got the job done and we, and, and we abseiled back down together, but we still got hit on the way down. Um, and, and the whole thing is a lesson in hubris. It was naivety to go up there. It really was. I'm never going to do that again. And it was, it, was, it was wrong, I think, to put her in that position. I think the, in our excuse, we just didn't know how aggressive she was going to be. But the thing that really concerned us both once we were on the ground and you know, we'd stopped shaking was the fact that she could have very easily damaged herself seriously. For her, that was a fight to the death. That was everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. her dick was at stake. So I can't blame her for that. And you live and learn, but I won't do that again, I don't think. <laughs> well, it's it's quite, I mean, as you were relaying that story, I've only got one experience and it pales into insignificance. So I don't even want to relay it, but I've been hit in the back of the head with no helmet on by a tawny owl checking a nest yeah. box. And that hurt, so I dread to think what it feels like to be hit by a harpy eagle in the well, neck. Because well, the, the tawny yeah. nearly knocked me off the ladder. Tawny's pack a punch. I mean, I mean, Eric Hoskin, you know, the, the yeah. pioneering um, wildlife photographer, he lost an eye to a, a well, tawny when he well, went the, up. The interesting thing about it was, and I've got a picture that I put in the slideshow, and it still pales into insignificance compared to what you've just said, 
but she hit me in the back of the head full on and it was like someone hit me with a bat in the back of the head she didn't hang about and she landed in the tree in front of me this was in this was in uh, gloucester um and she landed in the tree in front of me and just lined me up and and i put yeah. my arm up and i've got a picture of blood all where she scraped me and if i hadn't put my arm up she'd have gone she'd have hit me square in the face she wasn't holding back it was and it still won't die for him and i know some people watching this might be thinking oh crikey that's uh, that sounds a bit full on but it's it is quite a new it, it, i've been to hundreds of toenail boxes it doesn't happen and interestingly steve roberts the superstar nest finder friend of, of mine and um, he's been up to a harp eagle nest and he didn't get attacked he, yeah she, she just sat in on the branch and just watched like you say they're all individuals yeah. i think um, they are and I, I think i think what we didn't realize at the time was that because we've been hanging out there filming the rest of the documentary for several weeks i i think she she she, she was just pissed off with us she we'd outstayed our welcome and and she yeah. took the opportunity to to um to uh to balance the score a little bit um and i think she was clearly irritable uh, with us being around you know um yeah it's interesting you say that about raptors because when the first time we went up when i was rigging that goshawk nest that, that we filmed in in gloucestershire um i did a lot of research on youtube and stuff for you know and in in north america i mean it's i I believe ostensibly it's the same species isn't it um yeah, yeah, Northern yeah. yeah gentilis or well it um they they are pretty aggressive in north america and yet they don't seem to be in in northern europe so i was fully expecting them to be pretty angsty when i went up anywhere near their nest but thankfully they weren't um yeah, I wonder. Whether, I wonder whether that's all down to persecution. I don't know what the situation is in America, because because it was funny when you were talking about the goshawk, your experiences with the goshawk, and um, you know, again coming from someone who's been fortunate in the fortunate position to monitor lots of goshawk nests, I've still never had that view. When I'm up a tree, you know, doing our biometrics and and whatever under license, that you very you might see a shadow in the in the yeah. tree or yeah. something come over the top but we never got the view so you, i i'm jealous that you know you've got the views you did but yeah it's interesting that i've never been attacked the only other species i can think of is um and this was a one-off i had a friend who's a farmer who rang me up and said jimmy you're gonna have to come <laughs> come up to the farm when we go to get the cows out of this one field on the quad bike the lads get attacked by a bird of prey and it was a buzzard and every time because the buzzard nested in that field but they were on quad bikes moving the cows out the field and the buzzard would <laughs> come steaming in and, <laughs> try and try and have them so <laughs> But then I've been to hundreds of buzzard nests and never had that happen to me. So I think it definitely is individuals. But it's, it's, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, when you've got, mind you, with a harpy eagle, it's a bit different because they hunt primates anyway. And you're, you're just essentially a big bloody primate to one. Yeah, it was very interesting, actually. Um, she, she clearly understood primates' body language and knew when I was yeah. looking at her when I had my back turned, you know, and she always attacked from behind and stuff. And um, I, I hope I haven't sort of sounded flippant or facetious on any level at all about going up to her nest because it, was it wasn't a decision that we took lightly. And we honestly didn't, we just didn't realise it was our naivety. And I wouldn't do that again. I mean, I've subsequently, um, as you know, I had, had the opportunity to film Philippines Eagle. And, yeah. you know, when, when, when in, 
in, in terms of sort of when you're a kid looking through an encyclopedia and you look at a harpy and you look at the Philippines, they look like bookends, you know, they, and, and, and you think they must be related, they must be very similar, you know, and of course they're not. I mean, it was a real learning experience for me. It was a revelation and, and you know, to be able to sit opposite a Philippines eagle nest day in, day out for a month at canopy level and just watch what the parents bring back, watch the way the chick um, develops its flying skills. And, and it actually took its first flights whilst I was there. I can genuinely yeah. say that what ended up in the film is its very, very first yeah. sort of fledging moment. Um, but I have to say that I, I, that I, I do think they are um, like chalk and cheese harpies and philippines eagle I, I got the impression with the harpy it was all about the feet it was all about the talons and they rely on that killing impact um yeah. with their prey whereas with the philippines i got the impression it was more about the beak the beak was much heavier and the legs were um sort of uh less less chunky less muscular yeah. less powerful um and, and of course, the Philippines have that captivating, you know, truly bewitching light grey eye. So you feel like you're looking at something from a different world when it puts its yeah, crest yeah. up and everything, you know. So, but then I didn't have to go up to the nest and put a nest cam on. So who knows how they would have reacted. But I think if I'd have been asked, I would have said no anyway. You know, it, yeah. it, it yeah, it, exactly. I mean, it is a high level of intrusion and, and you ha do have to weigh that up. I mean, the harpy is one thing, but Philippines are just so endangered and so rare. But I think yeah. anything, I, I, that would be difficult to justify, I think. I suppose with, with technology nowadays, do you, would, obviously, the, the, so the movie, the, film, the footage you're talking about with the Philippine Eagle, that was part of the Netflix series, wasn't it? Um, Our so, Planet. Our Planet. planet. It's yeah, up there, so the jungle episode. It's made by a very good company in Bristol called Silverback Films. Um, they're, yeah. they're very good at what they do, so worth watching. So that's that's still available if anyone wants to watch, watch yeah. that, and it's it's well well worth it. But I suppose with the technology now, do you necessarily need to put a camera on a nest if you can get all that footage you did? I know it's a lot of man hours and a huge amount of you know effort in in terms of of that, but you know, for the sake of welfare, it, I suppose it, it still works, doesn't it? Really, it's you, you yep. catch all the interest, all the, a lot of the interesting things that you catch on a webcam, maybe better to some extent because you tune yep. into what's what's going on in the environment around you as well. Yeah, um, I don't know. I is, think, is that right? Or no, I think that's a very strong argument for um, for for not using Nest cams. I, I, I mean. You know, I've worked on projects <clears throat> in the past um, where, you know, we've been asked to put nest cams on, you know, normal, I say normal, but sort of garden species, blackbirds, robins, blue tits, all of that kind of stuff. And it is easy to get cavalier and just assume that they're going to tolerate it. And you, you run the risk every time you intrude or go near a nest, you run the risk of, of the nest failing, you know, um, so you have to be very, very careful. You have to take it just as seriously, whatever nest you're going for, I think. The thing about nest cams, and the reason why they're so alluring from a filmmaker's point of view, is that they, they genuinely do give you something um, 
that you cannot get through a telephoto lens. And that's a much more intimate, up close, wide angle view okay. from inside the nest looking out, as it were. Yeah. Now, you know, you, you, you have to be, from an ethical point of view, you have to be absolutely certain that that isn't going to, you know, be too much of an intrusion. You have to balance yeah. that. But all else being equal, if, if you can do it without, um, you know, with, without, um, uh, without it being to the detriment of the birds and the young, then, you know, I, I still think visually it is worth doing. It gives you a, a wonderful insight. And, and ultimately, to, to create a sequence, you have to have a lot of different shot sizes and a yeah. lot of different angles. Um, it can't just all be telephoto. You, you need to give the editor something to build around. Yeah. Um, obviously, ethics outrules everything. If there's a chance of, of causing the birds, you know, problems or the nest failing, then you don't do it. But some species are more tolerant than others. Yeah. And you can't do it without a problem, you know. Well, it obviously, I mean, going back to the harp eagle stuff, there was in the end everything everything was fine with that, wasn't it? Yeah. The chick alleged and. And, yeah. um, and I suppose in some ways contradicting myself now with what I've just been saying about, is there any need to do nest cameras? I was thinking it when you, you were saying about the two eggs hatching. In some yes. I don't know, but I imagine you've probably captured some footage there that's probably ne potentially never been filmed before. I don't, I don't know, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, well, in, it's in interesting. <clears throat> because yeah. um, the producer, Adrian Seymour, um, you know, he's got a PhD, he's, he's a doctor, and um, he, um, he, he wrote a paper up and yeah. uh, was, very, was very kind. He put Graham and I down as co-authors, you know, because we were there at the time and helped get that nest yeah. cam in. But he wrote a, a, a paper and it was published. And um, you're absolutely right. It was, it was an insight into behaviour that because everyone had assumed that once one egg hatched, the female would stop incubating the second. Yeah. And it would just get broken or turfed over the side or ground into the nest or whatever. Yeah. Um, but to have both of them hatch like that, to have documented siblicide like that was was quite a, a, a moment behaviorally. Yeah. So, um, so so Adrian wrote it up and it, and it was accepted and, and it was published. So, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so there's two things for people to watch. I don't know if you can get the harpy eagle thing on on YouTube or something like that. I'm sure it might be on, on in some in some archive somewhere. But I'm, yeah, yeah, that's that's my first knowledge of the legend that is James Aldrin and this guy swinging around on a rope, getting battered by a <laughs> battered by harpy eagles. Quite legendary. Um, tell us a bit about um, so. so parts of the world that you traveled because normally invariably when i try and get in touch with you you're n not in the uk you're you're <laughs> here there and everywhere the life of a, a wildlife cameraman probably seems quite glamorous but i always think that you you know you're probably living out of a case you're probably home for most well you're away for most of the year rather than at home and and uh, <laughs> <clears throat> and also, what I can never get my head round, and I spend a lot of time watching birds, and is the patience that's needed to to get the shot. To, and, <laughs> yeah, so so talk a bit about, just explain to people a bit about yeah, life on the road, and, and maybe what it's like, and how long you spend away, and, and where you've filmed, and yeah, there's a million other things. 
<laughs> well, um, you know, being a tree climber and specialising in, in filming or using ropes to access difficult places to film um, wildlife, um, inevitably, I would say 90% of my work takes me to various rainforests um, around the world. So um, I've been very, very fortunate to, um, to, to, to see as, mu as much rainforest as I have, actually, because it is, you know, it is going. It's, there's no doubt about it um, and it's pretty shocking every time I go back to Borneo it uh, well I was know. well funnily enough I was going to leave this towards the end but I might as well ask you now as you touched it because oh, you because you've been traveling for so many years to all these places and climate change is literally thank goodness on, on a lot of news now and on the front page of a lot of things thank goodness what is the, what have you noticed on the front line which is essentially yeah. Go, what what's how much has it changed in in just your anecdotal experience well i i think um fragmentation is the big issue uh, i think whether that's in europe in bielowice forests in poland you know new forests at home here or whether it's the middle of the amazon or uh, kalimantan in borneo it's the lack of interconnectivity so so forests are being parceled up and it's a it's a classic divide and conquer um and i well, the first time i went to borneo um to saba to a place called danham valley was in 1997 and it, it blew my mind but at that point the research center was right next to the logging camp um now what is that 23 years later the logging camp is no more, it, it moved on, and that patch of forest has been left. And it is protected, and it is 43,000 hectares. I mean, it's a big lump of forest, Fast. but it's completely surrounded by oil palm now and urbanization. And I, you know, oil palm, it just oh, makes my blood boil. But the fact of the matter is, you know, it's all right, Europe, and I'm going to get political now, and I promise I won't rant. I promise. No, you're all right, crack on. <laughs> but it's all right, America or Europe, you know, taking a stance and saying, you know, um, you know, we're not going to import, you know, oil palm, and it's great that certain brands have oil palm free on the jars, you know, all this sort of stuff. Fact of the matter is, while half the world's population is so poor that they have to buy cooking oil by the thimbleful in plastic bags every evening like india china whatever then there's a market and if it wasn't oil palm that was replacing the rainforest it will be something else in the amazon it is something else it's soya you know so oil palm itself is a bit of a whipping boy i think and it's just the deforestation. It, it, the oil palm is irrelevant. It's what, yeah. in my, this is in my opinion, it's what's grown there is the problem. And the fundamental underlying problem behind all of the deforestation is the inequality in terms of distribution of wealth around the world. And I don't want to get all Marxist about it and everything, but, you know, Tony Benn knew a thing or two. And if you want to hear about all of that, about how wealth, you know, yeah. <laughs> And, and I, I, 
and I see that happening with Forest. You know, I, I remember being in the Peruvian Amazon 20 years ago, and we were we went to a, 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 a an official, sanctioned, legit, legal selective logging camp. Um, yeah. it, it wasn't actually; it was in Equatorial Guinea. Um, but they were they were they were selectively logging for a tree called Akume that grows in groves. It's a beautiful red tree, beautiful sort of pink blush to the timber. It's a gorgeous hardwood. And, and they, they just go through that forest like a dose of salts looking for these, uh, for these groves. Now I had this really sort of idealistic image of selective logging that someone would go through the forest tapping the trees, they'd wait for them to be the right moment, they'd get an ax, they'd spend three days, you know, and it, you know, yeah. and it was all done, hauled out with horses and they, but of course, selective logging, the reality is driving a 10-ton bulldozer straight through primary forest, trashing everything else out. And that was legal. And it had an FSC stamp on the ply board that was then exported to Europe. And we yeah. go down to BQ and we buy it with a clear conscience. A few yeah. years after that, I was in the Amazon and I heard a chainsaw. And we were in a protected area. And I thought, hang on, this is... And I probably shouldn't have, it was dangerous in retrospect, but I followed the sound. I snuck in there and had a look, see what was going on. And it was a local Peruvian man with his family and they'd walked in. I got talking to him in the end. I, got, I couldn't, he, he saw me, you know, there and, and we got chatting in my schoolboy Spanish. And he was nomadic with his family and he had uh, uh, four mules with him and he was poaching. He was, he, he was cutting down a mahogany tree, you know, and which is pretty bad. He was doing this within a national park, but he was on the breadline and he had his family there. And I remember watching the toddlers walking up and down. They were bare feet and it had been raining and all their feet had been turned orange by the sawdust and, and they were playing on the, and he was planking this stuff up by hand with his chainsaw and they were going to carry it on the mules, carry it out to market. And that's how he made his living. But he's carrying it all out. And the, the carbon footprint from that operation the tree was being chopped down, obviously, that was very sad, but the actual method of extraction, uh, extraction and the way it was being done was um, so minimal in its impact, and yet it was illegal. And I know you can't have people just waltzing in, taking a fancy tree and, 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 and yeah, cutting yeah. it down. But the point I'm making is, you know, old forestry techniques, those old boys knew a thing or two, you know? And the reason why shire horses were used in British woodlands is because they didn't compact the grounds, you know, it left the seed bank intact, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's the industrial scale of deforestation that, that terrifies me. And like I say, if it wasn't for oil palm, it would be for something else. And the thing I have yeah. noticed the most is in Southeast Asia, the Philippines was just shocking, you know, but most of their forest was gone by the 50s and 60s. Borneo is in is in the forest is in its death throes at the moment. You know, the last truly wild big stand of forests now really are the Amazon, which is the, yeah. is the ultimate forest, and parts of the Congo. And, yeah. and but let's not forget the boreal forest as well, you know, the Arctic yeah. in, in the Arctic Circle. But but that's being chopped down at a, at, a, at a huge rate as well. But of course, no one hears about it because there aren't any cuddly primates up there, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. I, it's you know. funny, you know, listening to this, I agree, and it kind of, a lot of it links back to, we had Jason um, Ibanez from the Philippine Eagle Foundation on, on this um, a few, a, a couple of weeks, last week, 
Um, and we were talking about the fantastic cultural um, conservation um, and community work that they do. And the, that, 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 yeah. When I go and do a when I go and do a talk, and I might tell people about um, about the the Philippine eagle um, being shot, and and you know, as Westerners are shocked and horrified, and we want to see the the perpetrator probably strung up and all the rest of it, and yet you have to, like you say, explain the situation that a lot of indigenous people, well, all indigenous people in my eyes, they live such a holistic lifestyle with the environment. It's us, it, it, it's the, the the outside world and the wealth and the greed and colonialism. Uh, sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox now. No, true. It's, it's really it's, true. Is, is what has caused, is causing all the problem. Yeah, and that, there's a timber yard that I go to and they have stacks of sheets of ply. And it's really interesting yeah. to hear you say that because I yeah. look at it with the stamps of Brazil or wherever and the big FSC stamp. And I look at it and think, yeah, that's, I don't buy that. I, no. I literally don't buy it, but I don't, I'm not buying into, into that at all. Um, I it, know. You know, it just, it's, it reeks of, yeah. yeah. Real no, I, I know, well, it's that old thing, isn't it? You know, very expensive to those who can't afford it, free to those who can, you know, it's yeah. all, deals behind closed doors and backhanders and things you know I mean it, it, it I, I do find North Borneo Saba pretty depressing now I, I it's it, it is a theme park you know what has been preserved now is being sold at a premium to go and get your you know sort of honeymoon rainforest experience and it is magical it is wonderful but it's table scraps it's what's left behind I mean Borneo was coast to coast forest, north to south, east to west. It was one of the truly great forested islands. So was Britain, for that matter, yeah, yeah. Um, of the world. And um, you know, it's it's a, you know you don't want to preach, especially not as an outsider. I mean, it's you know um, I'm not a Sabahan or whatever, but it's been done by by. Oh, anyway, look, it's you know it's very difficult to separate that level of conservation from politics. It, yeah. it just is. I, I would say that within the last twenty or thirty years, the one place which has a bittersweet, um, you know, sort of thing for me now is is Borneo. You know, yeah. it is so magical. It is so beautiful. But you can't help but think, my God, what this place must have been paradise three hundred years ago before we got our sticky mitts on it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, because I mean, we're talking about birds and birds of prey, but you've you've worked, you've spent time filming orangutans, um, which must be another level sort of experience to 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 witness them in in the wild in in a tree next to you. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't even imagine what it what it's like to to experience that. So yeah, it was just to get get a bit of a picture. It's changed anyway. I got I, yeah, it, it clearly has changed from someone who's travelled. So going back to one of the other questions, then um, I'm conscious of time. I don't want to keep you all night. Get getting that sh getting that shot then. That you sat in night because I. I seem to um, re recollect us talking about the Philippine eagle because yeah. I was I was obviously out there the same time you yes. were at a, di a different nest um, yeah. the, the most random thing passing a, passing someone you know on a track in a rainforest in the middle of nowhere it's just ridiculous yeah. really. you can't, you can't <laughs> go anywhere um, anyway um, yeah so was how long was it you was it a week or something you spent at one point where you didn't see any adult yeah. or so yeah. go on. how do you deal as 
well, you've got to do, you've got it's your job. I know it's your job, but what's your way of getting through for any budding wildlife camera person that might be watching this? What's your what's your release for the the dull moments or the quiet moments? Well, um, talking books. <laughs> <laughs> Audible and other ones are available. Ironically, that's the same as me. I was doing a dull job this morning listening to Brian Blessed talk about the panther in my kitchen or something. So, yeah. I, well, I was listening to his, it's funny you should say that, I was listening to his um, autobiography. Oh, we've got a little man here. You're all his right. Biography. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Um, I was listening to his autobiography. <laughs> um, when when I was filming that, and it was um, the key to uh, keeping mentally alert. I think, well, as mentally alert as I ever am, um, yeah. is to listen to uh, an audio book quietly in one ear, in one ear. So I can hear okay. what's going on. So I can hear the alarm calls of birds telling me that the the, the, the raptor, the owner of the nest, is about to come back and yeah. give me a bit of warning. Um, but um, but it, it keeps me alert because it gets very hot and stuffy in the middle of the the, the day in the tropics, especially inside a canvas hide. I can't stand yeah. up properly. It's only a meter square. I'm I'm quite a big bloke and I'm sort of cramped in it very easy to fall asleep and the worst feeling in the world is where you wake up and you look at a, a nest and you've been waiting a week for a food drop <laughs> and, and you know it hasn't happened to me thank god but then if you woke up and saw a freshly delivered monkey on the nest I mean that would be a horrible moment so yeah. you have to keep awake which isn't easy so I listen to and and the key is um Wordsworth classics it's unabridged classics so things like Moby Dick uh the Count yeah. of Monte Cristo any anything you know like the Count of Monte Cristo is 58 hours long or something <laughs> so you know it's, it's, it's so when you're sitting there for a long time you know um you can tune into something like that and that really helps yeah um but you know even if the well, thing yeah, you're yeah. not yeah even if the thing that you're there to film isn't there there's always something else going on you know, and you're learning the yeah. whole time. You have wonderful interactions and encounters because after a while you become just part of the, the landscape up there. And animals and birds yeah. in the canopy behave very differently towards you than compared to when you were on the ground. They don't see you as a threat. And I see this time and time again, whether in the UK or whether in, in Borneo. You know, yeah. I've, had, I've had chimps climb up the same tree I'm in, lift up the back of the, the flap of the filming hide to see what's going on inside. I've had squirrel monkeys play uh, a peekaboo with me. I've had birds come and land in the top of the hide and bathe in the pool of rainwater, uh, collects, so that when I look up, I can see their silhouette. They're, they're millimeters away from me and they don't know I'm there, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a real privileged insight and there's always something else going on. And, and at the risk of sounding a little bit, you know, um, dull, um, you, you've also got the shifting weather and, and, the, and the way the light plays through the rainforest. Um, light is so important with the rainforest and you start to notice things as the light shifts through the day that you just don't notice earlier on. Um, you know, and, and, and for someone, you know, with a, a, a slight, you know, I, maybe someone more intelligent would go out of their mind with impatience or boredom. But, you know, 
I, there's enough there to keep me tuned in. Well, I, I don't. Well, it, the clip. I can't imagine there is. I mean, I I, I have to correct myself because just before when I asked the question, I I used the word dull, and then as soon as I said it, I thought, no, you're in the rainforest. You're in the rainforest. There's never. There's gonna. There can't be a dull moment in the ra the rainforest. So, no, so yeah, there really and is. I know there isn't from from experience, and it's sitting in a hide in the Philippines, you know, watching it. And even yeah, obviously it's it. I you know it was a dream come true for me to sit, sit and watch a Philippine eagle now. But yeah, you oh. Philippine falconet and all the things yes. appear and exactly. stay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, the way always, I think there's always something. Yeah, absolutely. And the way I think of it, it's like it's like going to the theatre, and um, any seconds now, your favourite actor of all time can walk out onto the boards. Right. So you're sitting there in the audience. You're watching an empty stage, and any moment now, Richard Burton's going to walk out. And he's yep. going to break in some fantastic soliloquy or something. And it might be in three minutes, it might be in three days, but you don't want to miss that moment. And certainly if it's your job yeah. and, and you're there to film, you yeah. can't miss that moment because so many other people have worked so hard and spent so much money getting you and their kids into that position. The, the, the thought of being cavalier about it and taking your eye off it for a minute. I mean, you just you just couldn't you you, you couldn't work in this industry and have that attitude, really. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose there's always there's like you're talking about the young lads, you know, Waldo, etc., with the climbing side of things. There's always yeah. going to be that aspect, I suppose, of the the up and coming the the new boys on the block or girls on the block you know for camera work so i suppose you've got to make the shot because you don't want to be the guy asleep while the monkey gets delivered to the nest otherwise jack jones will get the call up or whoever but yeah i suppose um yeah, yeah so just just touching on on that what have a run through because i'm i'm rubbish and i haven't done a list of i should have done a list of of what you've you've worked on i know i know if we've obviously mentioned the harp eagle stuff yeah yeah Name some of the big blue chip stuff. Go on. I want you to, you can sing from your highest perch if you want a bit. And, and name <laughs> um, some of the big big stuff you've worked on. Um, well, I've been fortunate to work on quite a few big uh, Attenborough projects. I mean, uh, uh, David Attenborough narrates quite a few projects as well. Um, and, you know, I've been involved with, I don't know, 14, 15 of those. And, and that's really lovely. When you see your footage being narrated by, well, Sir David Attenborough, that's really quite a moment. But more than that, it, it really is fantastic to actually work with the great man in the field as well. So um, works on things like Life of Mammals, um, Life in the Undergrowth. Um, oh, gosh. Um, there we are. Um, well, the first job I did was um, uh, Life of Birds. I just had a little, you know, assistant role on that. Um, Blue Planets. Um, yeah, Planet Earth. Um, a lot of natural worlds over the years of, of recent projects have been big Netflix things like Hostile Planet was National Geographic, um, Netflix is Our Planet. Um, I'm currently or have recently been doing a bit on Green Planet, which is the, uh, the, the new remake of ostensibly of Private Life of Plants or a re-versioning of it. And that was with um, David back out in Costa Rica, bizarrely, in exactly the same place where I first worked with him 20 years ago. We stood at the base of exactly the same tree. But, cool. but it was a real moment for me because back then I was, I was doing the rigging and I was hauling him, um, poor chap, up and down trees. 
He yeah. used to, when I, when, when I arrived, he would look at me and he'd say, uh-oh, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but this last time, it was a real privilege to actually be the person looking through the camera and actually filming him. And that was a real moment for me. Yeah, and he's still, he still got it. I mean, the, 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 the guy is absolutely incredible. So that, was, so that was a real privilege, a wonderful thing to work on. Um, and, and the thing about the streaming channels now is it's blown the whole industry wide open in such an exciting way. All the roads don't lead to the BBC anymore. The, I yeah. mean, the BBC yeah. is wonderful. It, it's a benchmark standard. It is, it is the defining quality that every other company aspires to. But there are some very, very good other companies out there doing absolutely brilliant stuff, easily yeah. as good as, as what the NHU is doing now. Um, it's a very exciting time to work in the industry, or it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Until, until the virus. But that's one hell of a that's one hell of a CV anyway. That you just reeled off about probably all of the big big blue chip BBC things there. So, so um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty impressive. And, and yeah, um, David Attenborough just as the cherry on the cake. And that's uh, it's nice to hear. Yeah, that's lovely to hear that you were. You know, you, you started and then met, at, you know, and worked again with him at the in Costa Rica at the same tree. So, uh, that's, no, uh, he's um, no, he's an absolute gentleman. He's everything that you would hope he would be. Really, he's. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, it's not really my place to give an opinion either way. You know, on someone as great as him, but for what it's worth, yeah. you know, he's he's a wonderful chap. Well, 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 I was lucky enough again to to do. One, yeah, I've worked with David Attenborough and met him, and it's this. You're absolutely right. I, we did a Barnell 3D film um, for Sky, and this was when I was working with Captive Birds of Prey. So they wanted a Barnell to fly out of a tithe barn in Oxford. And, Lovely. You know, they had all the stuff rigged up, and so I went along um, and uh, and met met Sir David and sat and while we had sandwiches at the butty van and all the rest of it. And he was the nicest guy signed a book for me. Yeah, um, lovely. So on and so forth. But then, like you say, I can completely get where you're coming, probably not so much as you, because you've worked with him on several occasions. But I stood outside the barn and watched David Atten present to camera live, and I was just like, this is something else. Yeah. Uh, and it yeah. really is something else. That's the interesting transformation that occurs there, isn't it? Because yeah. um, when you look through, when you see him on screen, um, you know, he, he's obviously who he is. But off, off camera, when you're just chatting, um, it, it's, you never quite forget who he is. But it, it's, he's, he's a very approachable, um, tolerant. Yes, you know, he's, he was very, he's very tolerant of, of me as well, because you feel a little bit, I feel, I always feel very self-conscious when I'm talking to him because um, he actually listens and I'm not used to that. <laughs> he'll, he'll listen, he'll genuinely listen to what you're saying and then ask you quite a, a probing question about the opinion you've just voiced, you know, yeah. and, and then you're caught, you're slightly on the back foot thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this is this very, very sharp, intelligent man is actually asking me a question about something I've just said. Um, he's a bit of a hero. I better not stuff this up, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, at least you had the, you had the, when you were pulling him up the tree, you, you, his life was in your hands then. So it was all right. You had the, you had the ace card uh, there. But I don't know. That's, so what, obviously, to sort of, 
wrap wrap things up, I suppose. Because um, yeah, we've been on for over an hour, I think, nearly now. I could I could talk for ages <laughs> to you, mate. Um, what the virus? Obviously, we, we've yeah. spoke to everyone's the same. It's it's knackered work up for for everyone, especially you know the film the film industry. Um, you've all been pulled off jobs and and have had work cancelled for the foreseeable. Are you allowed, is there anything you can tell us? Anything exciting on the horizon when this all settles down, or is it all cloak yeah. and dagger? Or well, yeah. yeah, we all have to sign these non-disclosure agreements these days, and all of that. It's all a bit cloak and dagger. But I'm I'm meant to be in Patagonia now filming, um, but obviously not. I'm I'm just about to start on a big um, UK thing uh, down in the New Forest, and. Um, oh, yeah. We're, we're waiting for words on that and obviously lockdown is not something to be taken lightly. I mean the, the, the plus side I suppose is you're kind of you're pretty much self-isolating when you're in a camera hide. You get in your car, you drive to location, you're on your own, you get in there, you do your job, you get in your car, you come home, you don't interact with anyone. So it might be workable. We're waiting to hear from you know the, the, the you know the people we're working with as to whether it's viable. But I've got to say I mean this this whole virus thing is, you know, it's pretty sobering, isn't it, mate? I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's almost like it's been a long time coming in a way. Our population is such now that so I think this is going to become a more regular thing. It's not really my place to speculate, but in, in the face of all of the health issues and the problems and the fact that people are dying, you know, a little bit of work going down the Swanee just doesn't even register. It's no, just not, no. you know, you know, it's, I, I don't care about the work, you know, <laughs> can live on credit cards if I have to, as long as my family, friends and people keep safe, that's all that counts. Yeah, it is, and we, 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 again, Jason, we had a really interesting chat, you might be interested to hear this, um, with the Philippines and I said what's obviously there's a knock-on effect like a lot of establishments where the Eagle Centre's shut so they've lost all that revenue so that's that's bad but you know um one of the most worrying things to hear was a lot of the communities that like what you and I met Jason said they've all disappeared when you go to these communities or when they could it's all locked down now um there's only the elders left in the villages and everyone else has disappeared off into the forest to practice slash and burn farming because they've lost their income there's they can't go into the towns and cities to to trade or laborers and they and they you know so they can't it and jason said it's really worrying people are starving basically in in the uplands and, and it won't just be going on in the philippines of course no. it, won't be. it will be places like borneo and, and other places like that and you and it's scary to think all that hard work potentially that the Philippine Eagle Foundation and other conservation organisations achieve could yeah. get unraveled by a virus that, yeah, yeah. Like, like this. So mean, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because you inevitably end up weighing human life against um, environmental loss. Yeah. And that, I mean, you know, gosh, braver, braver man than I that makes a judgment on that one my god I mean you know as we all know that that's at the crux of of most of the con big conservation issues these days um yeah and like you say when your family's starving what are you meant to do you know yeah. take yeah, one for exactly. the team well no <laughs> you don't you, you know you get on and do something about it 
and if, and if you know if that means growing clear in the patch of we've lost you i can't see you james or hear you might be the we might have pushed our luck with the wi-fi a bit <laughs> 